Your father wrote that note, but he wrote it 600 years ago. So what does that mean? You, you faxed my father's glasses and documents back to the 14th century? No, Chris. Your father is in the 14th century. What? Lord Oliver demands a demonstration before nightfall. It would be best not to miss the deadline. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Take Me to Your Reader, the podcast where we discuss adapted science fiction at its best and worst. I'm Seth. I'm James. And I'm Colin. For this episode, it's a special episode, not because it's just episode number six. By the way, did you know, guys, we've, this is our sixth episode, which is, you know, that's more than none. That's which, pretty cool. Which we always kind of assumed we would we would do none. And as long as we have more than six listeners and downloads, we'll consider that a success. Yes, so absolutely. But in this case, uh, the reason it's a special episode is we had a listener suggest a topic. And that topic was Timeline, the 2003 movie based on the 1999 Michael Crichton book of the same title. So that is what we're going to be doing this time. You know, unlike a lot of the book and movie combinations that we've done, this one I think we'd all read and we'd all seen in the past originally. Like I know I'd read the book and seen the movie. True. I think yes. Seth, you'd seen yes. the book and seen the movie. Mm-hmm. And so for this one, we were in this unique position of knowing all the source material up front in, within the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, and then getting to reread it and re-review it. And yeah. I found myself really enjoying the book. Mm-hmm. There were things about it I, I didn't like, but I think, you know, still served to move the plot forward well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were parts of it that were just completely awesome. Yeah. I, I right. did find myself um, less blind to the faults of the book this time. Right. On just, a reread? Yeah. Just from having read it before and having read some other more recently superior books, um, I still liked it, but... But yeah, there there were things that stuck out to me, and I kind of went. Uh, I guess that flew right by me the previous read. I found myself uh, more critical of the science. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Definitely. Than yeah. when I read it the first time. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the book. And I mean, Michael Crichton was a prolific author. He has died um, in two thousand eight, I believe. But um, I realized once I started reading Timeline, I looked in the the kind of the bibliography in the front of the book, and went, I've read all of those. And I, I realized, I looked at his bibliography on on Wikipedia, and I've read 18 Michael Crichton books. That's incredible. So, Wow. But do yeah. you remember all 18 of them? <laughs> I could tell you something about each of them. Uh, but, uh, Fair enough. Yeah. So, some of the kind of ones in the middle, not right. not sure. I had one <laughs> summer where I read like seven of them. My sister had a whole bookshelf full of them, and oh, yeah. I just started picking up and reading them. That's funny. I think I had the same experience. I've read like all of Jack's Park, Congo's Fear timeline all in the same summer mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i and i got to the point where i had caught up mm-hmm. and then i would just read whatever new one he he put out and right. then recently they've been dredging up partially finished books oh, and yeah, finishing yeah. them off and pirate latitudes and I, the college era books and yeah and pirate latitudes i actually enjoyed it that one was a complete manuscript that they found after he died oh okay and it was kind oh, of a departure right. from his normal kind of techno thriller thing i think he just wanted to do oh. do a swashbuckler and I, I quite enjoyed it, I have to say. But then Micro came out, and that was one that was an unfinished manuscript, and somebody else finished it for him. And there's a reason he didn't finish that book, because it was oh. crap. I, yeah, I, I, I couldn't set aside, I, I couldn't get past, like James, you said, you, you couldn't give some of the science a pass in timeline right. this time. In Micro, yeah. I yeah. couldn't, uh, not a bit of it. I, I, I remember it being fairly convincing the first time I read it. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it was before I took physics in college. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> then I have no excuse. And then yeah. the, the, the second time around, I'm like, but what about this and that? And 
making all these connections that were later explained or, or answering or asking questions before David Stern got around to asking them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it becomes obvious what who David Stern is in the right. book, right? He's the reader. Yeah. So Michael Crichton's an interesting guy, right? He, he, w- he would have, in his books, he would try to tie things into sort of plausibly near future physics or right. near future of science. Yeah. And this was an example of kind of one of my favorite introductions where he kind of introduced it almost in a nonfiction format, very much in a nonfiction format. And oh, introduced you mean, uh, introducing quantum physics. Yeah. Oh, okay. And and, and the quantum it, revolution right. and, and just yeah. the nature of science and how scientists tend to think, well, we've discovered everything and then there's a breakthrough right. and, and it redefines everything. And I like the way he sort of transitioned. There's a subtle transition between all these factual statements about quantum physics and quantum right. teleportation and all that into the fictional universe of the book. Yes, and right. it's very done very neatly. I think he does a good job of that, making science that's not quite finished yet mm-hmm. very believable. Right. Well, I think it worked in other of his books. Too. So in that introduction, he, he actually footnotes a few things. And I thought, oh, these are fictional. You know, the, the, the <laughs> article that he's referencing here doesn't really exist. But one of them was a Science Magazine one. And I looked it up, and sure enough, there it oh, is. Oh, cool. Wow. So, nice. so they, were, they were genuine. And then I was mentioning to Colin oh. earlier, um, if you look in the back of Timeline, there's a very extensive bibliography all right. about quantum physics and about the 13th century or the 14th century. Yeah, I noticed he has so. a ton of the 14th century yeah. stuff. So he did his really homework. Neat. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of by way of introduction to the book. Um, <laughs> anybody want to lead off? Okay. They're all pointing at me. <laughs> <laughs> so Timeline is, is based on, uh, there's a man named Robert Doniger. And he is one of those, you know, jerk brilliant scientist businessman starting in the 70s and the 80s and he has decided that he's tired of working for the man he's going to start his own thing and what the thing he wants to try and and invent is uh, matter teleportation we did it with a fax machine we can translate a document across the world around the world but we can't do that with matter yet and so he works on it and he works on it works on it and they're finally able to do something that looks like it it does that Mm -hmm. And they find out that's not what happens. It's actually doing quantum teleportation into another universe. Right. Uh, one of the sites where they can uh, transfer, transfer matter to appears to be 1357 France. Right. And Well, we should mention here that um, the, kind of the way the book is introduced is it, it talks about that, the 14th century. And then it kind of transitions to archaeologists and historians actually working in France, attempting to unearth this city of castle guard or town village whatever right um and all the surrounding areas and they keep getting tips from right. itc corporation yeah about tips it. Of where to look where to find stuff right and and, the, and they get a little suspicious and at some point the professor who's the main guy and why don't we introduce the cast at this point sure so we have the professor uh i don't even remember Ed, johnston. edward johnston edward johnston, edward johnston. Yeah. Yeah. um then we have his minions uh andre merrick andre merrick who is andre Yes, Eric. yes. Who is, what, is he Dutch or? French. No, not French. No, no, he's, he's not, not French. French. I think he was Dutch. Yeah. yeah. Um, who is kind of, he's, he's another historian and he's obsessed with right. the Middle Ages, right? And he idealizes it. He practices medieval right. martial arts. The book you know, very much illustrates him as a man out of time. Very much. And he's, yeah. I have to say, it, he's a total Mary Sue, which like this overly <laughs> idealized character. Um, to me, it just, that was the impression I got. I guess, I guess you call it a Marty Stew when it's a man. But, oh. Um, <laughs> lots of times it's a stand-in for the author. But in, in this case, I don't think it was. It's just, I guess that kind of person could exist, but I found him a little unbelievable in the book. But um, we'll, we'll move on from there. There's Stern, who's uh, 
on a scientist who works with them, right? He's he mm-hmm. kind of does techno techo stuff. Yes. For them, uh, you have Kate, who is an archaeologist. Yep, and she's skilled in rock climbing. Right, of course, because um, you have to have a hobby and and uh, right. horse horseback riding, right? She's a uh, was she the one that did? I don't remember. No, she didn't do horse riding. She was archaeologist, but she um, was a uh, architect first right that that's right. right yeah she was in into yes. architect school or right. was an architect so her, her focus was mainly on you know i always wanted to pretend to be an architect architect yes <laughs> seinfeld i love george oh it's vandalay and chris hughes chris hughes is kind of the professor's adopted son uh, he's been guiding him for years chris is right. a uh, uh scientific historian scientific historian right. he's studying a mill that was there at castle guard mm-hmm. trying to figure out you know how they they ground mill using water power and, mm-hmm. and you know what gears and cogs and ratios and well yeah and his thing is that he feels like the technology of the past is often maligned and and we look at we look at right. the 14th century as this dark time before the empire oh wait no yes. um we, we look at it as this this ignorant time there was no science there was no advancement in technology and no he's he's going no 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 there there was and the, the mills and that kind of stuff were quite sophisticated mm-hmm. right. and they, they could use water power you know hydropower in order to to pump bellows and that kind of stuff for forges and right. for mills and all that kind of awesome stuff yes so is that all the characters i, I mean there's robert doniger or doniger obviously who's the itc Head. There's his his assistant uh, Kramer, Miss Kramer, Diane Kramer. She's his troubleshooter, right? right. And then Gordon, Gordon, who kind of is his security guy, security and yeah. enforcer. So after a visit from an ITC uh, executive, who I think is actually Kramer, right? And she seems to know all these things about the site that they haven't right. told her yet, and things that they haven't even discovered themselves yet. Right. The professor gets suspicious. He goes to New Mexico because he wants to confront them and figure out what they're holding back from them. Because mm-hmm. while they're funding the whole site, I mean, there should be full disclosure on both sides, right? Right. Um, and they, uh, he's gone. He's gone them longer than he thinks they should be. They think he should be. Right. And they uh, make a discovery. And the discovery is a piece of parchment and a piece of glass. Right. And those are significant because the piece of glass is one of his bifocals. And the parchment is significant because it has his handwriting on it asking for help with the, with a date in 1357. Right. Okay. So they so they verify the glass and they verify the document. The document is old. The ink is old. It's in his handwriting. Elsie uh, says she knows that because she checked it against his signature and it all kind of lines up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the glass has old, old, old bacteria on it. And so it just doesn't make sense. And the professor is gone longer than he should be. Right. So they contact Doniger back at ITC Tech. And he says, well, I'm going to fly you out. There's a problem, and I, I need your help. Mm-hmm. And that's where we start to get into the science. Right. They, they, we have the, the big reveal. that mm-hmm. you know, They've invented this quantum teleportation machine that doesn't really take you into the past. It takes you into parallel worlds right. at differing places <laughs> in time. Uh, and then it turns out that they don't actually do it, that they made, they made a machine that will destroy you here, and some other universe sends someone almost exactly like you back into the past. Right. And then when they return, some third universe translates a person who also went back into the past back to there, which means that if you teleport yourself, you die three times. Right. I'm not sure you got that completely correct, but I think you can be completely forgiven for not having it straight. Yes. Um, What I like is that Crichton puts in that (laughs) quote that anyone who claims to understand quantum physics doesn't, you know, or I can't remember what it was. And it's, it's, completely it's kind of with one wave of the hand, he says, don't ask any questions here right. <laughs> that aren't explicitly answered. <laughs> and if I give you an answer, just go with it. So, right, they, they ask him, well, wait, so we're going to time travel? And he says, no, time travel is impossible. And right. so evidently, from what I understand, you guys correct me if I'm wrong. Hmm. The idea is that there's this 
all these multiple universes and they're not all at the same point in time. And right. so if you step directly from our universe into another one, it might be in 1357. So you're not time traveling, you're just time time travel or you're just traveling between universes and the universes are not synced up in their timeline, so to speak. That's yeah. kind of what it seems like, yeah. Or or the idea being that if there are infinite universes, there should be a universe almost exactly like ours where development happened hundreds of years later and so they're behind us technologically yeah. in I'm not I'm not sure if that's what it is. I and again, maybe it doesn't really invite speculation and further study, I think. No. Um right. It you know, it, at some point you just kind of go, yeah, okay, I'll go with it. And 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 that's fine. Um he he takes you far enough that you can kind of if you if you go that far with him and then Turn off your brain from there, then you're good. Well, even in the in the book, some of the characters, I think Gordon says that they don't completely understand technology, but right. they have it refined to a point where it's usable. Yeah, because he says that that you know, yeah, we're we're going to zap you down into nothing here and send you to another universe. We don't have the technology to rebuild you on the other side, but there is a universe that does, and it'll do it for us. Yes. So, right. He, he because kind of, they're nice guys. Right. Yeah. He kind of made it sound like the universe, the universe itself, was just reconstructing you on the other side. I don't, right. know, I don't know about a third party, but who knows? <laughs> yeah, so, but the major problem that comes up here, right, is, okay, so you're saying you took Johnston, or Johnston or Johnson? Johnston. And you sent him to, not our universe, a different universe, a parallel right. universe that is somehow causally connected to ours. And he was still able to produce the, right, the clues, How is it causally clues. connected to ours? I mean, because <laughs> he says you can't go back and kill your grandfather, but it's established right from the beginning that if you make a change in the timeline on this right. parallel universe, it somehow percolates through to ours. Because otherwise, how would you find right. the professor's glasses? So it's one of those things where you kind of go... That's the part yeah. where maybe... That's because there's some other universe that's 600 years ahead of our universe and with people <laughs> almost like us, though. And they came back and left the eyeglass there and the handwriting on the document. Okay. Oh, sure. Why yeah. not? Like Yeah, like we said, <laughs> it requires a, a bit of a stretch. Yeah. I, I I was thinking. Do you remember the spectrometer BS camera, <laughs> which was James's, yes. which yes. is kind of our generic term for. Yes. There's there's mysterious technology at work here. Do not inquire. Nope. That's yeah. that that's what I saw. Pay no attention to the BS happening behind the curtain. Right. Right. So anyway, they decide to go back in time to try and find the professor. And going back with them are two ITC security people that are supposed to help and guide them. Everyone gets an earpiece so that uh, it will automatically translate old-style English and French so you can understand what's being said to you, but you don't necessarily have the ability to speak it. Right. Uh, you're not allowed to take any modern technology back, aside right. from that. And you and have a ceramic wafer or something that you can activate to call the machine to go back. Right. In theory. Right. In theory. Not right. our machine, someone else's machine. Right. Yeah, that's I'm not going to go down that path again. Funky, so. We're sounding like we're just totally bagging on this, but it's really quite enjoyable. And just in the reading of it, it's it makes sense as you're reading it to the point that you can you can get past the quibbles. And it's one of those things that you know I I put the book away and then I go wait a second. <laughs> and it as long as you believe the flux capacitor works, it right. works. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And this is where I totally understand why the movie was much shorter on technical detail because it would have lost everybody. Right. Yes. Where in a book. You know, it's it's really quite readable, in even though there's gobbledygook in it. Mm -hmm. So they go back in time, and one of the things they find out is that uh, one of the two security guards had actually brought back a piece of modern technology, right. and they're attacked by horsemen. He gets shot by arrows, and he triggers his 
disc to return with a partially activated grenade. Right. He comes back in time or forward in time. Okay, universe. He comes back again. to our mm-hmm. universe. And the <laughs> grenade goes off and it destroys the landing platform. Right. And so now our time travelers have no way back. The ceramic discs have an expiration time. Right. I can't remember. 37 hours or something like yeah, that. Yeah, 30, some odd amount hours. of time. Yeah, and the other operative um, kind of military person that they sent back with, with right. them was beheaded. Beheaded. Was, I mean, in right. the first minute that they were there. Right. right. By just roving soldiers or bandits or whatever. Um, and it's explained as just, it's it's the violence inherent in the system. Yes. So well, that's what they thought. No, the times were idyllic, but the war was justified so later on. Yeah. Well, so before they went back, they got all this prep, you know, it talks about what, what you can and can't do, the fact that you don't know the language. But of course, right. Andre knows the language. The professor knows the language. Right. And because Andre is this perfectly idealized <laughs> man out of time, right? I was right. born in the wrong century. And so he knows Occitan and Middle French or whatever it is, Old French, Middle, Middle English. English. Right. And so he's going to be able to communicate. He also knows the customs, like he knows how to put on the hose and right. the, all that. And the doublet. And the doublet and, and, and all that. And they get all that done before they go back. Yeah. Uh, they don't just say, computer, 14th century clothing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and there's a whole series of adventures they have back there. And we, had, we need to introduce some new characters. Sure. There is Sir Oliver, who is the lead of the English forces. Mm-hmm. There is uh, Arnaud, who is the commander of the French forces. The French are trying to push the English out. Uh, so, you know, you could think of the... Yeah, it's during the Hundred Years' War. Right. right. The the French are on offense. Right. The English are on defense. They're heavily entrenched. Mm-hmm. They're in a place called Castle Guard, and they're also in a place called La Roche, which mm-hmm. I think is The Rock. Right. Uh, Welcome to The Rock. There's Lady Claire, who is a uh, an English lady who is... She's an interesting character. Yes. You, you're never quite sure what side she's right. on. She's on the side of the English. She's on her own side. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the impression she's, I she's on her own side. Which is interesting, because you wouldn't necessarily expect... It's such a misogynistic time, you know, right. a, a patriarchal time. Yeah, I was going to say for a woman back then, for her being a woman, it's very But I think she was, she had land. Her own side. Right? She, she had land. Well, yeah, so she, she had, had land, but it was, it was questionable whether or not she'd be able to keep it without, right. getting a, without having a husband. Right. And so she right. was courting several different men and interviewing them for the role in various right. ways of questionable morality. Right. Yes. Very much. So th- the party gets separated. Yep. And and they have to figure out how to, and in the in the past timeline, they have to figure out how to get back together and escape with M- the professor, with with the professor. Yes. Right. Meanwhile, in the future or in the present, they have to rebuild the platform in order for them to come back. And so the first thing that they have to do, and we didn't mention um, Stern, who is kind of the science guy for the group. Um, he refuses to go. He doesn't like the idea of being broken down into little molecules or whatever, or being destroyed mm-hmm. in one place and teleported to another. Just which, like McCoy. Yeah, and right. it reminds me <laughs> of uh, the Big Bang Theory. There's, there's like the they always have the cold open where where it just starts like with a conversation and then it goes to the credits, and they have one where where the guys are all sitting in the cafeteria at work and Sheldon says, "So here's the problem with teleportation," and he gives <laughs> this monologue about how you're destroyed here and then recreated there, and it's not. Not any longer the same person. I'm going to have to put that in the show notes. Right. Because um, it's a good, a good scene. So Stern, on in the present day side, has to help them try and figure out, how is there a way we can send them a message? Because they need to know that they can't come back. Because if they try to come back, right. nothing's going to happen. Right. And you know that could be really bad if you're in a bad situation. And you're like, okay, now we're out of here and push the button and nothing happens. Yes, my get out of free 
Get they, out of they did jail free card right? doesn't work. They did try and come back and they're like, it's not working. Yeah, I can't remember if they did that or if that was in the movie. No, it was did. in the book. Too. Okay. Yeah. I think they thought. I think they thought though that the problem was there on their side where they didn't have enough room. So another interesting thing to me about about Stern is that, like I think I mentioned earlier, he's kind of the stand-in for the reader. He asks the questions right. that the reader would ask yeah. right then. And there were several times where like on. One page, I'd be like, wait a second, but, and then I turn the page and there's Stern <laughs> right. asking it. Yeah, I found <laughs> so myself doing that same thing. I would was, ask the questions first, and they're like, hey, Stern's asking the same question. I was mm. just wondering about. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> I was, I was thinking about, and I'm like, if Stern didn't stay behind, would we have any reason to even have the other half of the book, the modern day story? But, right, there'd be no tie in, right? Right. There, there would be no stake for us in that part of the story. Right. Well, and they sort of no, made it clear. There's no relatable character at that point. One of the interesting things is they, they, take him to and they show him kind of the earlier prototypes and that kind of thing of mm-hmm. of the teleportation equipment yes. and they and they talk about the shielding and and transcription errors right. which to me don't make any sense but I'll get back to it in a minute but at some point they talk about how they they teleported a cat right which what does that remind you guys of it reminded you of dandelo it reminded me from of the yes. fly yes very much um, well, well the whole vapor in the book reminded me of the fly as well right yeah, yeah. well i mean white any, anytime mist. it's all Anytime it's teleportation, it's going to remind you of <laughs> Brundlefly. Yes. Well, why is there any time there's teleportation? There's always this white mist. Because right. it looks awesome. I mean, we, we've been over this. It looks cool. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's the quantum foam. It's how Hollywood supports the local carbon dioxide industry. Yeah, very much. Right. Um, the so transcription errors. Let's talk about this. Because they, they make a great kind of federal case about shielding in the teleportation chamber. Which makes right. me wonder, well, why didn't you just do it like... Like they do for the neutrino detectors, where they put them like down in old salt mines or something, miles below the surface. If you were really concerned about, well, they were miles below the surface. Were they? Or at least hundreds of feet. I think they like were hundreds of feet, feet, but not they? enough, obviously, yeah. because they needed the water shielding right. as well. They were hundreds of feet below the surface of the earth, and they had the water shielding. But okay. see, I'm not yeah. sure why why they needed the additional water shield. Mm, yeah, I don't know. Because any particle that's going to be able to get through that mass of earth into there isn't is, is so weakly be... interacting like neutrinos or something that it's probably not going to interact with the water either. well they seem more concerned about the radiation for as far as that okay. goes right that's what anyhow so transcription errors, right do, you're right. getting copied essentially faxed from one place to another mm-hmm. and if there's errors in that transfer they start to accumulate right which okay that makes sense i guess but the idea that you're going to have transcription errors that cuts off the tops of your fingers that's to me, it's too linear. I, I I would have expected it to be more random. That sounds like a computer-based error rather than yeah. a radiation right, thing. Right, that's what but I was thinking. It's hard like to know how the computer quantum computers are affected. Yeah, I guess that's true. Right. All right. So and may, it makes it relatable because we've all seen bad faxes and we know what they look like. Yes. But, right. but But that that's kind of counting on... It's not counting... It's not expecting much <laughs> of your reader, right? You're, you're relating it to, to a... Maybe. Similar technology in the facts, you know. Yeah. And, and in the movie, they definitely go that way, and I totally, I get that. Where in the book, I don't know. How many people know what faxes are nowadays anyway? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> don't you mean Point. email? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'd be curious if there was anybody out there who read the book and has my same gripe about transcription errors not really making a lot of sense. I think it would but. make sense from, a, like Colin said, a hardware perspective. Like if the computer glitched somewhere reconstructing you. Right, but the, but but the quantum computer is like it, the processing is done in another right. universe, so <laughs> so I, I I don't buy it. But I, yeah, so why should shielding this universe help it out or affect it? Yeah, but you know they also said the process was was not f- 
uh, free of errors. One of those was transcription errors. The other one was mm -hmm. they were sending up all these weather balloons to try and figure out what's going on. Sure. Okay. And we've wandered really far from going through the rest of the plot, which is you know something we might well, want to okay. do or might that's not. That's why they need to read the book. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good book. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting book. You're going to learn a lot about medieval technology and mm -hmm. medieval culture and clothing and uh, you know why you don't light matches inside of grain silos and all mm -hmm. sorts of wonderful things. Yeah. Um, right. One one science gripe I have with the 14th century side of things. At some point, uh, Chris is in a room and he hears soldiers approaching from outside the door and he hears the zing of them drawing their swords, which is crap because swords do not make a zing when uh, you draw them from their scabbards. That kind of something? Yeah, they do not do that. Oh, really? Um, yeah, you, you're dulling your blade. If if you that that's a very poorly designed yeah, scabbard. Yeah, good point. It's but not going to have metal on the inside. It's made of wood. If you hone a blade, though, you get a zing. Sure. Yeah, that's my point. You don't make a scabbard out of metal. You make it out of right. you make wood, it out of wood, wood leather. Covered with leather. Usually made yeah. out of yeah. And so I'm going to put a YouTube video in the show notes because I I I'm like okay, I mean, can't be the only person with this gripe. And mm -hmm. I found I found a video of a of a guy talking about that, and he's got a bunch of swords, and he's like, so hear what this sounds like, and it makes a sound. It's more of a, it's a sound no, though. It's a very kind of wooden sound right. so and that also depends on how firmly it locks into place mm -hmm. i think i think the only metal you could probably hear is the the unlocking of the blade from the yeah click so but, but that's yeah it's a minor gripe but zip yeah but still but he, he got a lot of a lot of science and, and a lot of the 14th century very very plausible to me but that one i'm like no 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 can't let that one go <laughs> um one of the things i really liked was how they geeked out when they finally got to see castle guard right um you know, when when we build something here and you get to look at it, there's an appreciation for it. As archaeologists and historians, you know, they were trying to figure out what this looked like, and they were helped along quite a bit by people that had actually been there and brought back pictures. But here they are trying to reconstruct it by hand, and all of a sudden you're back there seeing it, and they're geeking out like, "Oh, I didn't get that part right, and I didn't know that was over there, and how come this is over here, and what's going on over there?" And yeah, yeah, that was cool. And so to me, the the strength of the book is in that past timeline, right? Where, with right. the with the kind of court intrigue with Oliver and Lady Claire and Arnaud, mm -hmm. and and where everybody fits into that, because because the professor has been known as a magister, which I don't even know, magician, uh, not it, probably sure in in the time, yeah, and <laughs> and so he's kind of being kept around because there's this mythical secret passage into Le Rock. right, and into Oliver the is there and he knows if if that passage exists. He's vulnerable. Right. He knows he can hold off the French army from inside of Laroc. Right. But with that passage existent or someone knowing about it, it wouldn't work. Sure. So there's that constant kind of refrain, and there's threat of death if you don't tell me. I keep thinking of Alcatraz when you can't say Laroc. Welcome to Laroc. Yes. <laughs> they go through this secret passage to get into Alcatraz. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, agreed. Totally. Oh. Yeah, You'll fun. have to cut that in. That would be cool. I, I yes, I'm gonna do that right here. Welcome to the rock. That would have made the movie much better if Sean Connery was in it. Yeah. So yeah, to me that's that's the cool part is is what's going on in the past. Every time it shifts back to the future, I, I kind of wanted to go. Oh no no no. Okay, let's let's move along because anything that wasn't directly them trying to bring them back was right. really boring to me. And there's this whole kind of subplot of Doniger getting ready for a big speech to his stakeholders or to yeah. you know to his Kickstarter people. Right. He needed additional people on the board because they were running out of money. And so he has to find several people willing to kick out 
five hundred million dollars each or right. fifty million dollars each to be board members. So he has this large presentation setting up saying like, why are we doing what we're doing? Right. And, you know, the other thing the future time does is it, uh, you know, it gives us more information about the technology. And it also tells us, you know, that Doniger is a jerk. Yes. And he is, he continues to be a jerk. He's oh. not, you know, he's willing to sacrifice everyone that's gone back there uh, because it, it, it's not the goal. He's very goal oriented. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's not core. He says. That's not core. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that that development of Doniger's character creates quite a conflict in yeah in the book. It will creates one so, where it didn't exist in the in the present day timeline really. But to right. me, th that's the problem, right? Is there's enough of a conflict. We have to get this rebuilt before they need before they come back. We've got 37 hours or whatever to rebuild it. Right, but now you got opposition against it being yeah, I know, but rebuilt so, and getting them back because if they didn't come back, it might be okay. From Doniger's yeah. point of view, right? Yeah, right? and and so I get that. I just like, it was superfluous. Superfluous. I gotta stop trying to use like five dollar words. Got to go <laughs> like to one dollar words. I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, the the weak points of the book to me are are anything where if it's in the present day timeline and it's not serving the actual mm -hmm. trying to rebuild and get them back. Right. Part, I didn't didn't care for it. I wanted to get back to the past, not back to the future. Yes. <laughs> and Stern, Stern comes up with some great ideas for how to communicate with them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the people that built the teleporter were smart enough to say, well, yeah, if we send a camera back and we get a picture of what looks like a French town, we can't figure out what's going on. And they, they point the camera up, which I thought was brilliant, right. and take a picture of the night sky and then figure out the alignment of the stars. Right. They need to communicate with the team back there. So Stern says, well, why don't we take one of your ear transmitters and hook it up to a tape recorder and put it in a loop? And then we can have it listen right. and record for a while. And here's where we go. Hashtag tape recorder. Yes. <laughs> 1999, I mean, it's not like digital right. recording devices didn't exist. Hashtag MP3. Not to mention a tape recorder would be huge. Well, well no. They, I mean, they made no, little, they had little hand Yeah, they had little ones. Oh, but oh, but oh, the yeah. slightest transcription error could totally oh. mess up the magnetic tape. But It would. In yeah. that spot. Right. Unless it just destroyed the reed heads. Right, yeah. Or unless so. it only happens on the out instead of the back. or. But no, it was, it was a good idea. Yeah. And actually, that brings up something that you've never seen the... Terminator, the Sarah, Sarah Connor Chronicles, right? Negative. Okay, but James has. Mm -hmm. And there's an episode, which is a really cool one, where there's a Terminator that's sent back in time to accomplish a mission, uh -huh. and it realizes, I've arrived at the wrong time. Oh, yeah. Actually, it doesn't realize that immediately, but it's, it's kind of looking around, it's confused, and then you see still right. images of, it, of the Terminator looking, looking up, up at the sky. Yeah. And when a modern day, the Summer Glau Terminator, sees that picture, she knows it's looking to try and ascertain the date. Mm-hmm. From the star chart. From the stars. From Instead the stars, of picking up a newspaper. Yeah. yeah. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I guess. I mean, it had just, uh, like, a, a speakeasy had just burnt down. So it might not have been the most convenient time to go looking for a paper. And, right. and it was like 1918 or something. Yeah. But anyhow, but, it was a, that, 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 that reminded me. I'm not sure if that was inspired by this book. Could have been. Um, so one other thing is that there's another modern day person back there. They, they become aware of that. And I can't remember who tells them in the book. They, f Nobody tells them in the book. They figured it out. They um, figured it out. That's right. Because they, they yeah. realize that someone is tracking them using right. the earpieces. Mm -hmm. right. And the only Chris person... Chris figured out that someone was right. tracking them wearing yeah. the earpiece. And only someone who's modern could know, A, that mm -hmm. it wasn't demons. And then there was a bit of a debate as who it could be. Right. And that was finally resolved towards the end. Yes. And we won't so reveal who it is. Because that's... That. That'd be spoileristic. Uh, yeah, but Gor I believe Gordon did tell... Stern. Anything else we want to talk about about the book? Uh, you know, there's a discussion about Greek fire. 
So one of the ways that Edward de Johns tries to, you know, prevent people from killing him is by making himself useful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he has 20th sec- century technology and access to it. Mm-hmm. And also he's an archaeologist and a historian. So he knows what exists and what doesn't exist mm-hmm. and what people want. Right. And also what he can't build. So what they want is Greek fire. And they can't build that. They don't. Right. No one has ever learned how to make that. Right. Instead, he can tell them how to make some other thing. I can't remember what they called it. <laughs> which is almost <laughs> the same thing. Yeah. And so he says, okay, we'll build me some. And it, it works really works really cool. The idea is mm-hmm. that if you put water on it, it actually increases the fire. Right. It actually sparks the fire, just just having moisture on it. And that becomes a key point uh, in Chris's confrontation with someone. Yeah. True. Yeah. And we have to say, the book has considerably more plot than the movie. Well, yeah. Much, much more. Uh, but maybe I'm jumping ahead of myself again. Do we want to say more about the book? I think let, let's go ahead and sum up and say what we liked about it and what we didn't. And, or, you know, go for the thumbs up, thumbs down kind of thing. So mm-hmm. sounds like we, we all enjoyed yeah. it. Thumbs up. I would own I'll, it. I'll I like the book up. that much. Mm-hmm. James, sorry. Colin was talking over you. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. I do own it. I just not up here. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> my parents' house. You, you own it in California? <laughs> yeah. I have um, most of Michael Crichton's books. I own most of them, actually. Mm-hmm. They're oh, just cool. not up here. They're at my parents' house. Sweet. Well, have them bring it up. Um, so, yeah, I, I also quite enjoyed it. Crichton has never been big on character development in his books. He's he's kind of high concept, you know, really cool technology right. and techno thriller kind of stuff. But the characters, to me, are about half-baked most of the time. Mm. Wow. And some of them get some development, but but some of the prose is pretty bad, too. I, I don't know if you guys <laughs> noticed. There's There's this one scene where... You know, Chris is kind of a jerk ass uh, at the beginning, right? Kind of a doofus. Right. I mean, not a doofus. Yeah. In the movie, he's more of a doofus. But <clears throat> yeah, he's <laughs> that's a. By the way, jerk ass is a technical term. Actually, it's a. It's a it's technical a, literary critique term. Right. No, it's a. It's a TV <laughs> tropes category. Um, no, but he's he's kind of immature. Would you say? Right. Yeah, he's he's chasing skirts. Sure. Well, I I think he's. Maybe the only character in the book that actually shows some sort of growth he, from he one has point an arc. to another. Yes, yeah. there you go. And and I'll agree with that. Where where on the other hand, you have Andre, who's a better developed character, mm-hmm. who doesn't have much growth have much, because he's yeah. just who he is. Yeah, he's this really really he's idealized, defined. perfectly suited to the 14th century. Right, could not be more perfect. He's yeah, he's supposed to be well suited to the 14th century. Yeah, you know, just like we we talked about this. You brought it up. You said you felt like a lot of the characters were. It was too pat. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, Kate is a mountain climber, and there's the place where they need a mountain climber to get out <laughs> of a, a, a place when they're in a jam. Right. And Chris's understanding of technology is really handy when they're trying to get out of the mill. Mm-hmm. And Marek, uh, Andre, speaks the languages. He can fight battles. And so he's ideally suited to live in that time. Yeah. Right. There was one line, I, I wrote down part of it, where Chris starts to become a little more mature kind of come into his own in mm-hmm. in the 14th, in the, century, the 14th right? century yeah he has a hard time kind of adjusting to it uh, and it's pretty tough on him but at some point he's starting to do some sort of heroic things and there's this sort of will they or won't they thing with chris and kate at some right. point early in the book and then oh, right. it says something like she looks at him and says she realized suddenly that chris was actually quite an attractive man that he had a certain genuine appeal <laughs> i think that was right after was he painful had... prose they they kind of saved themselves from the uh, the Green Knight. I think it was, yeah. And and that was, yeah. I mean, I was just reading that. And I'm like, wow, that's yeah, bad. That, it mean, was, it was, was. There was a very stark, like snap from yeah. where Kate. all of a sudden, ooh, eh, hey, all you're actually oh, beautiful. Hey, I like yeah. you. You're my knight in shining armor. <laughs> right, literally. <Yeah. laughs> so anyhow, you that, didn't buy that. It 
it's a gripe for me in most of Crichton's books. Okay. That that the the prose is not particularly good, and some of the character development is not very good. So either. I have another. Uh, I well, critique, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Does so we we're we we're talking about whether or not there was a main character in this book, and we I think we've all kind of come to the conclusion it was an ensemble cast. Yeah, definitely. And I I want uh, to me I just re- I. I'm wondering if that's maybe the fact that not all the characters compl- are completely developed and yes. not all of them have their own story arc. It kind of lends to an ensemble cast. Yeah, I, I would agree. It's a consequence of having that ensemble cast that yeah. some of them are going to be better developed than others. And so I'm I'm willing to accept it. And like I said, I like the book. Right. And I definitely recommend it. Yeah, I still think Chris is the main character. I, I think I would have to agree. Just because there no one else really stands out that far. Except Merrick. Yes. Right. But again, he's the one with the least amount of arc. Because because he just stays the same guy all throughout, you know. Right. He he kills a dude, and Chris is like, "Is that guy dead? Who cares?" You know? <laughs> right. And then the violence just doesn't phase Mary, yeah. as opposed to like Kate and Chris. They're like shocked. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Which I thought the movie handled that better. So. Right. We'll we'll get to that when we get to that. Yeah. W- one other major gripe that I usually have about Crichton's books is he doesn't end very well. His his endings just sort of hmm. happen. Yeah. This is actually one of the cases where I go. That's probably about as well as it could have gone in terms of the ending, at least for the ending for the main cast. The the, the ultimate, uh, I won't say fate, but the the Doniger situation, right. oh. a little too pat to me. A, li- a little too, <laughs> well, what could we do? Yeah, that'd be fun. Do that. <laughs> yeah, but it was awesome. Okay. Yeah, it was kind of fun, though. Yeah. I, I admit it. Yeah, I, I, I'll grant that, but... Bow to the awesomeness, Seth. But no, I just, I, I didn't buy it. Uh, you don't again. think they, oh, well. It, it was pretty cold. Um, it was pretty cold. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, we won't talk about the ending much more than that because it really is awesome. Uh, it's one of the things that they kind of keep in the movie, kind of not. It, it's changed. Uh, I kind of like the way they handled it in the movie. Better. You did? I did. So, because rather than, well. well in, the, in the movie, okay. In the in the movie, it was more accidental than deliberate. It was more accidental. It was more his fault, right? And and you know he was actually when I looked at when I looked it up on TV. Well, it was arguably his fault in the book too. But he's the jerk. Beside the point. (laughs) What it was arguably his fault in the book too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. Just in a more uh, indirect manner, I suppose. Yeah. (laughs) Although I often wonder how, if if you change certain parts of the book, how it would play out. Like if they didn't have the grenade that destroyed the machine. We will get to that. I, I have oh. thoughts about that. You have when thoughts we, about when that? When we talk about the movie. Okay. Yes. Hmm. Um, okay. I think at this point, yeah, we, we all liked it. And yep. so let's talk really briefly. I'm just going to say I, I saw this movie. I think I got it from the library or, or I don't know. I got it at some point and watched it. And I was excited because I liked the book. Uh-huh. And I had seen Jurassic Park and I had read that book. And I'm like, okay, that's an right. awesome book. That's an awesome movie. This can happen. And then I saw Sphere. I, or not, no, I don't think I ever saw Sphere. I Congo. saw Congo. Congo. And then that's the other side of things, right? Where you're like, right. that book is so awesome and that movie sucks so bad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that I wasn't, I'm not sure if it came out before Timeline. Um, and I'm going to pause here to look. 1995, yeah. So it, it definitely, so it came out after Jurassic Park, yeah. but loosely based on Michael Crichton's novel. <laughs> I don't, did pretty good in the box office. Oh, yeah. 150 million. Sure. What was it rated? Yeah, he's probably PG thirteen. It got a Golden Raspberry Award. That's not a good sign. <laughs> Congo did. Red yeah, yeah. It's actually rated higher than Timeline. Timeline's <laughs> rating is twelve percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It is the worst thing we have ever seen. Wow. Um, this makes me want to go watch Congo again. Dang it. Yeah. 
kind of. But um, you know, there are, there's critical response from movie, movie reviewers, and then mm-hmm. there's a box office response, which mm-hmm. says, did they make their money back? Right. And then in many places, like on IMDb, and uh, you can get r- r- uh, viewer response, which right. could be skewed. Maybe only people that like the movie would rate it. There's a bit of selection bias there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, 50% of people liked Timeline in several places. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I remember seeing it and being really disappointed, and, and I hadn't kind of come around to the idea that you can make changes to a book and still have it be a good movie. Even though I had seen Jurassic Park and read the book, and I knew that there were a lot of changes. Or or like The Hunt for Red October. Both. And there's major changes in all of those. Right. And, But generally, I was still kind of more in the Colin camp of make it faithful, dang it, die at 8 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) That's right. And (laughs) so for this one, yeah, I remember being really disappointed in the film. Right. Compared to the book. Yeah. But, you know, even after I've read the book, like, Maybe four times now. And I've seen the movie three times because I actually watched it last October. Oh, really? Oh, really? I, was, I was sick one day at home. And I <laughs> when it showed up on Netflix? Netflix or, okay. Yes. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I enjoyed the movie. Uh, bit of a sidebar. Really? We don't watch a lot of television <laughs> at my house. And so one of the treats okay. for the kids is if, if they fold laundry and they're doing it well, we let them watch something off of Netflix. And okay. I made the mistake of saying, well, hey, I need to watch Timeline. I need my laundry folded. We'll have Timeline playing while the kids fold laundry. No laundry was folded. <laughs> it took forever. I had to pause the movie. I had to yell at my kids. That's a good because sign, Because it though. was so engaging and okay. you know kept them going. It kept them interested in it. They mm-hmm. really wanted to know what happened to these guys. And that, that caused me to change my opinion about the movie because sure. I was the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, If I could say, okay, this is different from the book, mm-hmm. and maybe not in positive ways in some places, it's still a great ride. Sure. I, it's it's fun. It's a popcorn movie, right? It and is. we, we kind of talked about this where I was trying to say right. that Timeline was a popcorn book. Oh. And I think it's slightly it's it's above that. It's not like Clive Cussler or something. It's a pizza book, a little more chewy. It's go. got some protein <laughs> and some essentials in it. Yes. Yeah, so this second time watching it, oh actually, let me ask James, first time you saw it, hated it or Uh I remember hating it the first time I saw it. I okay. thought it was very cheesy. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And it felt a little under budget. Right. And, and I'm still going to say it's a little half-baked. This, this second time around, I still think it's low-budget, cheesy, and very predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of I liked it a little bit more because I just, about 20 minutes into it, I, for, I went ahead and flicked that switch that I forgot I read the mm-hmm. book and tried to enjoy the movie, and I actually kind of did at the end. Sure. And so for me, <clears> there's... There's goods and bads in the movie. There's some good performances, and that was that's one important mm-hmm. thing. Uh-huh. Um, not by Paul Walker. Not by Paul Walker. Holy yeah. crap! I, I've never seen anything else with him in it, but I thought he was awful. I but no, well, yeah. is it, was that him? I don't like him. Period. Okay. So. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the only thing I can readily. No, it's not. Right. <laughs> I can do it. The only thing I can readily say off the top of my head is Fast and Furious series. And, See, I, yeah, I never yeah. saw any of those. Not 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 as much. But yeah, the movie the movie seemed a little a little half baked, and right. we'll talk about what could have what they could have done better. And I have a very definite theory about it, and we'll get to that in a while. Yeah. So, adapting a book like Timeline, very complex plot, you know, a lot of moving parts. You've got people getting separated. You've got the Arnaud side, the Oliver side. You don't know who's the bad guy really. Right. You don't know who the kind of traitor in their midst is really. You know, who the right. other person from modern day is there right. you don't know if they're going to get the thing fixed on time so a lot going on there if you're going to make a two-hour movie out of it you have to really really compress that and if you want to get all those parts in it's going to be really frantic 
So you had to totally simplify it, make it a little more linear. And like James said, it comes out a little predictable. I think they probably could have made the movie a bit longer, put more money into it, and it would have been a better movie. Yeah. It was budgeted at $80 million. There was right. Quite, it wasn't. It wasn't low budget. It, yeah, but but no. somehow the it way it came together, it felt that way. I don't know that. Yeah, you know, like you say. I mean, it, maybe it wasn't, but yeah, it felt it like a TV kind of felt movie that to way. me. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. And and a couple of the performances are so bad they're a little distracting. Like the guy who played the professor, I thought completely mailed it in. And I know he's a good actor. Billy seen, Connolly. Yeah, I've seen him. Like he was in The Last Samurai, and uh, Mrs. Brown, and he was tremendous in those. Where in this one, I feel like all he did was go, "No, you can't do that." <laughs> And, like that was all he was there to exclaim to exclaim and that was pretty much it um so let's talk about a couple of the changes they made chris instead of being scientist is a doofus right right he only shows up yeah, on site because he's in love with kate well no he's the professor's son he's, right but the True. only reason he shows up is because during the yeah. summer is because he's in love yeah. with kate right and that's one of the cool things that billy Connolly does do as the dad he's like don't force her to choose between you and archaeology because Archaeology will win. Archaeology will I win. I did like that scene. Yeah, I thought that was sold well. Just the rest of the movie, right. I thought he was totally underused. Yeah. Um, more, bi- yeah more Billy Connolly. So one of my problems with, with Chris being the actual son of the professor is I liked the relationship between the professor and the students and, well, the academics, mm-hmm. where, where it's, mm-hmm. it's like a family. And that totally really does happen. In that kind of situation, where in like to the moviegoers, they're they're like, oh, it's his son. Well, of course, there's something at stake. Yes. <laughs> so you you can't just believe that that he could have this great affection for this professor. Well, and in the in the movie, when they go back in the past, they they meet Lord Oliver, and he says, "Well, who are you? Mm-hmm. Oh, we are uh, traveling students, and we're looking for our master. Right. And like, who's your master? Edward de Johns. And that's exactly what really happened. They told the truth. Yes. In a roundabout kind of way, right? Yeah, totally. Well, so when he's, you know, they say, well, when he was here, he didn't say that you were, that you were, he was expecting you. Oh, we're several days behind him. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, yeah, that's true, too, in a roundabout kind of way as well. Right. So going right. back to where you had kind of decided, if there is a protagonist, it's Chris. Yes. Would you agree with me that in the movie, it's definitely Merrick? In the movie, I'd be more conflicted. Okay. Um, See, I, to me, it's very Merrick. Explain. He's 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 the character who drives the plot oh. the whole time, uh, really? other than the the tunnel, which is important, obviously, but it's not as important a subplot in the movie. And Merrick Merrick is on screen almost the whole movie. That's true because you have to have a love story, right? Which is there in the book. Yes, um, it's done slightly differently because Lady Claire is slightly different. Right. Yes. Um, Lady Claire, instead different. of being this English lady with a large inheritance, is now the sister of Arnaud. Right. So instead of being this duplicitous, manipulative, you're never quite sure whose team she's playing on, she's very innocent, very pure. Right. You know, pretty. Um, actually, she's played well, by she was uh, needy Anna Friel. Well. A little bit, by Anna yeah. Friel from Pushing Daisies. Um, yeah. And I, I didn't recognize her. I, the whole time I was watching, I'm like, I know who she is, but... I, you know, she's a French lady, and I mean, she pulled off the accent pretty nicely. So, yeah. of course, she's English, and then in Pushing Daisy, she was doing American. So, right. accents. One thing to say about the cast: the cast was really well done. You know, Paul Walker, Francis sure. O'Connor, Gerard Butler, Billy Connolly, David Thewlis, Anna Friel, Neil McDonough—they're all fine actors. They've all been in movies, have been on in you, big screen, and you put Paul Walker. Why in did list. you put Paul Paul Walker? In that Paul list? Walker has is the lead actor in a massive movie franchise that even okay. if we don't enjoy... Okay, so you're saying high-caliber cast. High-caliber cast. Okay. You know, if, he okay. could, if he couldn't bring it home, they would have replaced him in the other movies. Yeah, high-caliber? I don't know. Marquee. So, Popular. Right. Yes. Popular. Star-studded. 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 Well-paid. So, also, character consolidation. Stern is now Elsie and Stern. 
Stern is now Elsie Ann Stern. Which is fine, because Elsie was a bit player in the book. You didn't really need her, uh, other than to read the documents. But Stern is now right. just the the. the we also had a bit of character expansion, right? Well, uh, Merrick no longer spoke languages. You had Francois in there. Right. And um, that was an interesting Gordon thing to do. kind of took on a different role. He did. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay, he went so back with them. Let's 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 go one at a time here, because so w- we've talked about this in the past when talking about Planet of the Apes, uh-huh. mm-hmm. where you had to speak English. English is the universal language, right? Right. right. You, you're not going to have a foreign language being spoken that's not even really a real language. Not this. So you never have the simian tongue in the Planet of the Apes film. Right. And so language simplification for this, you have this a lot of attention paid to the fact that there's a language barrier in the book, mm-hmm. where. Then in this movie, you you drag this French dude along because he speaks French because of course right. it's just standard English and French and and <laughs> right yeah yeah and it's an expedient in movies that I won't let it, let it go it just it dumbs it down yeah, right? yeah but I, yeah one of the things I enjoyed in the book was the whole mystery of the earpiece yes who's listening to them and then you know they're mm-hmm. not ever sure for a while how they keep keep being found mm-hmm. and they're being found because someone is listening to them the whole time yeah. And if you don't have that language barrier, you don't need the earpiece, which means you dropped a really, really nice piece of the plot. Yes. And so then you have to change the way you you reveal who the, the guy is that was listening in. Right. And so given those constraints, I totally approved of the way they did it, where he pretty much just announced who he was. You know, on, on a third watching, you can actually tell who it is, because he, ha- he does an action yes. that is very suspicious. Yeah. No, I saw it the second time. Yeah. Oh, when he stole, yeah, right, when he took the marker. Oh, yeah. Because, he, like, he knew what it was. Right, right. Yeah, and that's suspicious, but, yeah, it could be just random, I'm going to take this cool thing around your neck. But I knew it was there. Yes. Right? Yeah. And um, I, that actor, he was one of the high points for me. I, I really liked his performance. I liked that he had sort of a greater role in the movie than he did in the book. In the book, he's sort of shadowy. He has a few confrontations in there. Yeah. But in this, he's much more sort of the driver of the plot. And then Oliver is sort of less. Right. I don't know if you noticed that. Oliver got way less screen time than he got in, in the book. In the book. Which is kind of a shame because Michael... Sheen. Sheen, yeah. Really was giving a good performance. Oh, yeah. And he's kind of wasted on the movie. Yeah. Say, je suis un espion. Yes. And you guys can't see this, but I mean, he Fran- Francois is really nervous yeah, about going through the teleportation right. scene. Yeah. Hey, why, why are you sending me back there? I'm French. <laughs> well, you speak the language. Well, duh. It's the Hundred Years' <laughs> War. Yeah. Um, and he, so he decides to go with them. It's a heroic decision, which, of course... Ends tragically. There's something about French dudes die first or... Right. <laughs> and, and that was sad. But the, the thing that that did, it, it raised the stakes. Yeah. And, they lost and, a member of the team. Yeah. And aside so, from the guys in, in the beginning. Yeah. And so right. in terms of driving the plot forward, I, I liked that, even though it meant that we weren't going to get the cool language stuff. Yeah. And... It, it, you're not going to get that in most movies, so no, no. So that's okay. I love the reveal of the effect of the transcription errors on the person who who decided to stay back in time because we're introduced to ones that are mainly physical. Yes, right. Bones that don't align, nerves that don't line up, our arteries and veins which are severed. It turns out that the the psychological ones are significantly more pronounced mm-hmm. and show up earlier, right, before all these physical ones. And this guy has has become insane, and he's convinced people are out to get him, so he stayed back in the past. Yeah. You had mentioned Gordon, and so we'll we'll talk a little about right. about him because he was all present day in mm-hmm. in the book. Right. Where in this, it's Neil McDonough, and he's sort of a marine or something. He's he's like security, right. <clears throat> and and so he goes back with them, and uh, and he turns out to be kind of a coward. A little bit. Yeah. Um, 
I was wondering if he he the 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 act of him going the narrative part of him going back in the movie was just part of trying to justify the guy staying back. Stern. No, no, the dude that stayed back in the in time. Oh, because they do kind of bring that do I describe full him without saying his name. Because the it kind of brings scene. him full circle of why he stayed back. Because it's not yes. the same reason it's true. as in the book. Right. You know, his death, though, forces uh, Andre and Chris to take a larger role. Whereas he's kind of like, like you right. said, the lead protector. He's driving plot. He's protecting them. Mm-hmm. They're now on their own. And they have to move into that role themselves. And right. it's a nice way to develop yeah. them out and say, well, now there's no one here to protect us. We have mm-hmm. to do this ourselves. So one of the other interesting things, we, we talked about... Um, how Lady Claire was different. She's much less complex, much, right. much more standard damsel in distress mm-hmm. character. But early in the movie, when the, when they're at the dig in the present day, mm-hmm. Merrick is explains uh, narrating who she is, how, yeah. Yeah, who she is and, right. and how she's a catalyst for the French to win right. the, the victory. Right. And so the the plot about the... Because in the book, it's, but a traitor let some let, let Arnaud's forces through and Larach right. fell. Right, so which wasn't to- precisely true either. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. But it it makes it so that you have a different focal point for the battle. Mm-hmm. Right, and and so I totally, totally bought that. I, I like that. They totally transitioned choice. her to a much weaker char- weaker female character in the movie. Yeah, it, I, and that that is a drag because she yeah. was a strong female character. And then the of course Kramer was a guy in the movie and a right strong female character in the book. <laughs> yes, and Gomez was a dude. <laughs> Right, but yes. a female in yeah. a book. But you know, you're going to behead a lady since she steps out of the machine. Why not? Yeah, yeah, sure. We're equal opportunity to beheaders. Exactly. Um, but, but she that, didn't get beheaded in the movie. It was just it was a, a sword slash. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also the fact that they gave him sort of the you know Greek fire ish thing, kind of the same from the book, but but also that. So right. there's that discussion because okay, sorry, we didn't even talk about this. The technology is actually different. It's n- there's no right. mention of parallel universes. No, right. It's, it's a wormhole that is open to a very specific point in mm-hmm. time. You can't even go to different times. Right. right. You can go to 1357. And here's my problem. Okay. If your <laughs> wormhole points to a specific time in space time, mm-hmm. and you're going back in time to find somebody, you arrive at the same time they did. Yes, you should. So <laughs> unless it tracks with you right. in time, if yeah, it's, if it's so a 600 year wormhole, day by day it should creep. But right. that's. Yeah, yeah. I totally didn't think about that. That's a yeah, good point. Th- that's <laughs> like the first thing I thought of was wait, but yeah, if it's a, okay, whatever, and and moviegoers are dumb, I guess, right? We're we're not supposed to pick up on that kind of thing, yeah. right? Although think about what a cool plot move it would be if you say, oh yes, it goes exactly back to the same moment in time every time, and so you go back and like the professor goes, what what are you guys doing here? And then the same calamity which causes him <laughs> to be caught in the first place happens anyway. Right, and they still well, have to like deal an with it. Infinite yeah. recursion. Yeah, that could work <laughs> at that yeah. point of people going back. Plus, like, and getting yeah, caught. you know, the past does not want to be changed. Yeah. Dean Koontz. Yes, and mm. yeah, it takes quite a bit of effort. And I think you could have most of the same plot development happening sure. from that point going on forward. So one of the other simplifications they do is it's not thirty-seven hours or whatever; it's six hours. It's six hours. You got six-hour yeah. timer. Yeah, and it it's not a six-hour time. Oh no, no, of course not. No, yeah. it's it's an entire day. Yes, and and right. so that was that was a problem I had with it. They, they should have made it ten hours. That would have been much more believable based on what they filmed. Right. So another another female character who gets kind of short short shrift in this is Kate, because she was a much cooler character, had cooler stuff to do. She had that confrontation on right. the rafters. Yes. With the one guy. Yeah. Where in this one she's that just a little weak, and <laughs> she's Chris's love interest. Right. Right. 
Yes. Well, he does have a certain gender well, it, appeal. It fits with the theme of the movie. They dumbed down all the female characters, made them yeah. very weak, and then raised up. Yeah, it definitely characters. doesn't pass the Bechdel test, right? No, not at all. So. <laughs> it's, it was an interesting move. and There was a technological thing about the movie, which I noticed. It, it, it's probably inconsequential, but the boat that they're floating down the river in, Lady mm-hmm. Claire and Andre, there are staples on the rim of the boat. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I spent some time trying to nice. figure out when staples were invented. And uh-huh. it's plausible that they could have had wood staples back in the 1300s because no one knows for sure even when paper staples were f- finally invented. Mm-hmm. But I'm mm-hmm. like, staples? Really? really? I mean, Really? Staples? Bummer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I I, that was a cute scene. And it, it's the meat cute, really, of the of the movie. Right. Where they're going down the river and and the only conceit of different languages is the difference between common language and colloquial language because he asks her right. if she's seeing anyone or if if she's with anyone well, i'm with you yes <laughs> are you seeing anyone? Uh, they may be hiding in the bushes you know? <laughs> and so i i didn't know if that was a nod towards the language stuff but it was we're speaking the same language but not speaking the same language yes right. and so that, that was kind of that was all right and he, yeah he's he's deeply attracted by her mm-hmm. you know it kind of happens in the earlier in the movie where he separates from the group to try and go rescue her because right. she's and been captured well i think that's right. because he knows who she is at that point i think he's pieced together early on who she is and he's was trying to no he doesn't realize that. who he is, who she is until he realized he's rescued her out of the coming out of the river and and so now he's changed history all right but so let, follow me on this where my okay. my assertion is that merrick is the main character and one piece of evidence is that the scene where Claire, dressed as a, interacts with one of them, is not with Chris, it's with Merrick. It's with Merrick. In the book. Oh, good point. Yeah. Because she really makes the rounds in the movie. In the book. Yeah. You see her in the presence of all the major men. Oh, yeah. So, um, where in the movie, much much more linear. Yeah. Well, there's not enough time to develop that out, right? No. For that that part of the story arc to happen, it has to be with Merrick. Sure. Right. So I'm, I'm I'm cool with that. And Chris is in love with Kate, and so you know he would not be interested right. in her. He's not available yeah. because he's not right. the same kind of you know womanizing doofus that he is in the book. Right, just a regular old doofus. Yes. Right. Um, and he wouldn't well, okay. be able to so, save her. And when they're when they're in the present day, and they go to ITC, and they, <laughs> sorry, I, I I can't hardly say it without laughing, but they're they're getting the kind of rap about yeah it's time travel, and right? That sort of thing, and and he's like, so you're saying that you. Sent my dad's glasses and some parchments back to the 14th century. Moron. <laughs> he kind of has this California surfer dude. And since I haven't totally. seen any other of his other of his movies, I, I don't find know if that that's quite his natural insulting. Voice. Just gonna go ahead and say that. <laughs> Being a Californian, do you surf? No. Then that's not an insult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can you can call me on my Alaskan accent in the anytime you want to. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So one of the other things that that you get in the book, a strong theme in the book, is the 14th century was not a backward time. You know, people bathed. Right. Yeah. Um, they they used technology. Whatever technology they had, they were trying to advance in it. And in the epilogue to the book, sort of the afterward, uh-huh. right, Michael Crichton or acknowledgments or whatever, you know, he, he even, he says that a couple times, that, yeah. he, you know, his respect for that time really went up as he did the research. Yeah, he mentioned how modern historians now view it differently and right. all this stuff. And yet, then in the movie... At some point, they all huddle up, and Chris is like, "We got six hundred and fifty years of knowledge on these boneheads. We're totally gonna like win." <laughs> yeah, and that was kind of lame. It was like the antithesis of the message of the book. Right? But was that before or after the sword shoves up through the floor to kind of prove him wrong? I think uh, I don't remember. I think that was before. That was before that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, that was I think that was kind of a nod to people not appreciating people in their own time. 
Yes. Like, oh yeah, we're we're six hundred years more developed than these people. We should be able to kick their butt. And in a way, they did because no one thought you would escape through the roof, even even when a horseman like rode past as Kate is dangling from the roof. Yes, with those like, long streamers of yeah. things hanging off her dress. Yes. But yeah. that was also, I think, a nice nod back to the book again because she climbed that, especially the underhanding underhanging face. She was a little less competent in the movie. Yes. Um, and so that's why you know you're not going to have her in that rafter scene, which was an awesome scene in the book. Yeah. So. Another change. Oh my goodness, there were so many. The monastery yeah. is kind of a momentary thing. Well, yeah, because there's not that whole rabbit trail about the professor knows about the passage. Right. And, and he gives them whatever clue they need, but they have to figure out what the clue is. Right. And and there, there's a lot of kind of noodling about that that happens in the book where they're, they're piecing together clues. It's like a Dan Brown book. Uh-huh. And, and, and finally they get to the monastery, you know, and have to fight the dude. And, and then eventually, you know, through many travails, they find the passage right where in right. the in the movie it's much more abrupt they go to the monastery hi can you take us to the passage sure um, i mean not totally i'm i'm oversimplifying but i did like there was that moment where she had fallen through into that very chamber and wondered what kind of an idiot would who would destroy who the would destroy this right. art and, and <laughs> oh right it's me, me. <laughs> so that that was a nice moment actually and one other thing that i liked was at the beginning of the film again they they find the man and woman in the sculpture, the, the, the sarcophagus. Yes, the sarcophagus, and right. they, and they they bring that up at the beginning and then refer back to it at the end, which I thought was kind of kind of cool. Uh huh. One other thing about Kate's scene when she sees the facade inside the monastery back in 1357, mm -hmm. it totally reminded me of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. It's like, <laughs> oh, dude, I'll write myself a note to go back in time <laughs> and tell myself to leave the keys to my dad's office in. This drawer, right. dude, that's totally going to work. A trash can, and she's kind of like, remember a trash can. Yeah. Whoa! It's like, why would I destroy this? I would destroy this because that way I would see that I had destroyed it and know what's behind it. And right. so she breaks it, and of course, and don't take the glasses. And don't the glasses take the glasses. Here. We got to find the glasses. Right. Yeah, and and that's right. where if you're in the same universe and causally connected in some way, then yeah, you have to think about that. Which is one of the great things about Primer or Primer or whatever it's called. Right. Like wh where they actually talk about that yeah i'm not sure how the causality stuff works or whatever <laughs> and i still don't know what the movie's about but yeah <laughs> okay there was an element in the story and i realize you know there's not a lot of time in a movie oh hold on Th this quote should help explain this this is from one of the uh the reviewers on rotten tomatoes uh mcguire in adapting Crichton's novel clearly had trouble explaining all the nuances of the story with the constraints of a hollywood time limit yes there's just not enough time to do all the things that are really cool. Like there is a, they are no longer trying to replace UPS and FedEx in the book. There's a, a completely different reason for right. building the time machines. <clears throat> and though they're, excuse me, they're quantum universe machines. Their quantum universe machines allow them to go all over the planet. There are several different archaeological sites happening all in parallel. Whereas the wormhole says, no, no, you're going back here. Right. And and I love the end reveal as to why they're not trying to replace or what they're doing instead of replacing UPS and FedEx in the book. Yeah. So I, I agree that it's a neater kind of reveal for that because there's obviously more that you could do with the technology. Yeah. Where where if it's if the wormhole is stuck in one place, then yeah, you could use it for advanced right. history and archaeology and that kind of stuff. Right. And like in the book where they don't fully understand the quantum technology, they just know that it works. They don't know what caused the wormhole to exist. They don't know what anchors it there. And there's this whole thing about you know if if something bad happens they'll be they'll be stranded back there in time because mm -hmm. they think the they think the only thing holding the wormhole open on that end are their return tokens right and so once they come forward 
there's no long there's no longer a guarantee that they'll be able to go back to 1357. Ever. Yeah. Ever. Right. So my main gripe with the movie is that there was a modern day storyline pretty much at all. Um <laughs> I I wanted the modern day storyline there for them to get back in time. Uh-huh. Um, and then I would have rather not referred back to that at all. Like all the transitions back to that were terrible. I don't know if you noticed that they're, they're just abrupt. Just okay, now we're back in the future. They didn't. It's like they didn't even take the time to do like a nice screen wipe or something to get them back there. And then nothing interesting happened in the modern day storyline in the movie, as far as I could tell, until the end. And and I understand that that you need that part there. But what I the way I would have done it was not oh our things aren't working. Our things aren't working. It would have been okay, guys. We're sending you back here. It takes six hours for the flux capacitors to recharge. <laughs> So you're stuck there for six hours <laughs> or 10 hours or whatever. And then, then you don't have any of the, you didn't have to have the grenade. And I understand it's in the book. And so Colin wants it eight right. o'clock in the morning. Um, but yeah, it, it, it seemed to me like if they had spent more time on the 14th century side, we would have had a better movie and less time in the future. You're right. Skimping on the, on the near, the near time side, the now time is not going to hurt the movie that much. Yeah. Right. And also I didn't care for David Lewis at all. And we we talked about we on the way over. I'm like you can't cast him. You can't cast Remus Lupin as an American. He's just right. too English. And and his American <laughs> accent's terrible. His yeah. accent slips. Uh, you know, it sounds New York someplace. It's, it sounds he's inconsistent. There were a yeah. few times I'm like, "Oh, he's not doing it." Yeah, he is. No, no he's not. Right. Yeah, he is. Um if I don't anything, mind I'd say he's like a there, New Englander or something. I guess. Right. He also, it, it's like um, in this movie, Kramer was the brains. Doniger was just the money or, or just the CEO. Yeah, you get that feeling for it. Yeah. So that was a little, a little different. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. That, that would have been kind of my main thing to improve the movie, spend a little more time actually in the 14th century and right. don't, don't keep going back. Just, just go, okay, they're, they're here for this amount of time and have them keep looking at their things and go, oh, we've got another hour. So that way they don't have to be repairing the thing. It's just by the nature of it, they're there for six hours. <laughs> you have six hours and it's a one, like a, this is the last time we can do it or something. I don't know. <laughs> there, there could have been right. a better way to to handle that. And it would have been a change from the book, but I think it would have made for a better movie. Now, the siege was actually hmm. kind of cool I mean, with, the, with the with the trebuchets and the, and the right. uh, night the arrows. Arrows, lighted arrows. Yeah. And then the night arrows. Yeah. Like, oh, Oliver's a jerk. Yes. <laughs> um, so... One of the things we normally do is we rank the book and the movies. In this case, mm. there's only one movie to rank. Right. Uh, I, I think we would all agree that yeah. yep. the book is better. Definitely. The movie was not as good. Right. I, I right. Would, would we all agree that the movie was not as bad as some people thought? Yeah. Or I, I think it is somewhat unfairly maligned. It's not as bad as Rotten Tomatoes would have you believe. True. Right. <laughs> it, yeah. And I think definitely you'd be rewarded for watching the movie first. And then reading the book. Oh, yeah. Because if you haven't read the book and you watch the movie, you might go, huh, you know what? That was halfway decent. Maybe a little half-baked. Or forget you read the book when you watch the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You <laughs> Which do is what to, I did. You do have to kind of <laughs> set it aside. And, but, but yeah, it, it'll pleasantly pass an hour and a half. Right. It's Two an hour hours. 40. Okay. So, yeah. I, I was surprised. I, I was watching. I'm like, yeah, I don't remember it. I remember it worse than this. Right. I guess one last point to your making the movie better. Mm -hmm. What happens if people panic then at that point? 
Like there were several points where well, multiple people panicked and tried to go back. And yeah. Oh no, you need forty yards on all sides, even though the other right. guy just went and like a and cops and they would have tried to go back. And so I think you kind of have to have the things breaking on the other side. Wrong. No, no, I'm with James here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, but, I think um, you could have had less future time. Yeah, One of less the future time, definitely. But I think you still need to have something happen on the other side to prevent them going back to create more of a conflict. But yeah. I mean, but see, this is the thing. There's plenty of conflicts in the 14th century part in the book that you could have introduced that you didn't. Right. I mean, like you didn't have the tournament, which the tournament was cool. Oh, yeah. yeah, In the book, yeah, and the earbud thing. Yeah, but then it would have been a longer, a lot longer than six hours. (laughs) Yeah, and that's that's one of the other (laughs) gripes, and I understand it. Like everything, everything in the book, the book tries to be smart, and in places it is, and in other places it makes you shake your head a little. (laughs) Right. But most of that stuff is dumbed down. In the movie. movie going public. Yeah. yeah. In the six hours. It's kind of like when they did um, the Flash Forward television series. Did you ever read that book? No, I didn't. So in the book, the Flash Forward is like 21 years in the future that they're seeing, or 20 years. Well, you're bringing this to a television program, so you need it to flash forward to the next season. So it flashes forward six oh, yeah. months. So I but totally understand think, why they did it. Don't you think that we're trying to sell people short? In essence, aren't we saying the same thing about, you know, yeah, 13th, 14th century people are stupid, and the modern American TV and movie viewing public are also stupid. You can't show them something with intelligence. You can't show them something with plot development. You have to show them, you know, tons of villains, tons of action, and no plot, no character development. Okay. In in my defense, though, about, about well, or in their defense, okay, Adam Sandler movies make money. There is a time and a place for dumb <laughs> movies. Yeah. So... I think it's you're not wrong in assuming that American moviegoers are kind of dumb, or not well, not dumb, but not you looking just killed to be. our entire ratings, dude. <laughs> okay. Not so much dumb, but attention span. Right, I think is the I think difference. Not so much dumb as not wanting to be challenged at the right. movie theater. I mean, there are movies that make you think. Like I, I mentioned, Primer, right? Sure, that one. I don't know mm-hmm. if fifty viewings, I would really understand what happened in that one. Um, right. A movie like Inception, you know, it's a complex enough plot. As long as you pay attention, you follow it, but you do have to pay attention. Um, and there, there's lots of other ones where they're a little more intelligent. They require a little more of the audience, where this one right. didn't require a whole lot. At least not as much as the book did. No. And But again, I don't think they're wrong, right? The, the person who's going to read a 400-page novel versus go to a two-hour movie might not be the same sort of person who's up to an intellectual challenge true although you know we like movies we do and and we're wicked smart that doesn't mean no. they couldn't have made it an intellectually challenging movie it's true because that would yeah. have been much better. but what i'm saying is i understand <laughs> why they dumbed stuff down right why why they made some of the choices they did and and yeah, that, some that's, of them were required right and that's one reason why i i feel like the movie was okay because because i'm like yeah I, okay i get why you made those changes and mm-hmm. that's acceptable Anything else we want to say about this particular movie? Negative. We have been talking about doing another Michael Crichton film because OMSI is evidently going to have, I can't remember what you guys called it last Real time. Real science. science. Real science, where they're going to have an actual paleontologist come in, give a talk, and Correct. then you watch Jurassic, Jurassic Park, Park and IMAX. Yes. Which would be sweet. Yes. Um, totally. So I actually started reading Jurassic Park today. Oh, sweet. So, okay. so I think we should totally do that. <laughs> but for our next episode, um, nobody listening at home 
Well, probably is nobody listening. But um, <laughs> so just talk straight to Emily. That's fine. Right. She knows <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so we're recording this one before we've released episode five. So we we did our odd Thomas cast, and we haven't the odd cast. We haven't uh, posted it yet. And I will try and get that posted today, which is May the fourth. So May, May the fourth be, be with you. Happy Star Wars Day. And this is going to get posted in a couple weeks. And so we'll kind of stagger them out because James is going to have some conflicts coming up here. After that, we are going to do Death Race 2000. Yes. Which based on a story called The Racer by Ib Melchior. And then we're also going to do mm. the Jason Statham Death Race Sweet. film. So yes. back to two movies. We'll have yes, lots to, to talk movies. about. And so that, that'll be fun to do. And so at this point, I do want to say if you're out there and you're listening and you want to interact with us about Death Race 2000, you have a lot of time, actually. Well, no, not as much time, because I'm not going to post this for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> How about if you right. transport our podcast to a quantum universe? That is... <laughs> <laughs> right, definitely. Um, so I'll be posting this episode on probably May 17th, maybe the 18th, and then we will be recording the following weekend for Death Race 2000, if all goes well, if, if James's schedule loosens up. Right. And that would be, what, the 25th or so? Um, yeah, something like that. Yeah. And so, if you're listening to this before that date, you probably have a chance to shoot us some feedback if you have read The Racer or if you have seen the original Death Race 2000 or if you've seen the Jason Statham Death Race. So, if you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email us at feedback at pavementpodcast.com or just go up to pavementpodcast.com and look for all our social media links. You can find us that way and we are anxious to hear from you. I will say I'm really excited about doing Death Race because... Before I read it recently, mm-hmm. I had not read the story. I have not seen the original movie. I have not seen the remake movie. So oh, I'm, I'm going in cool. fresh on this one, which is cool, which nice. is different than this one, which is exactly the opposite, where we had all, right. all of us had read it. Yeah. So read I think it was to our benefit to redo it, though, because we reviewed oh, it quite a bit better than we would have originally. I didn't have a lot of memories of the film. Oh. Other than Jerry Butler was in there, and he's not Dutch, he's Scottish. Right. <laughs> okay. Um,. I think that's it. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. And then after that, we'll try and work in Jurassic Park. We were also thinking of doing Edge of Tomorrow after it comes out, which there was oh, just right. a cool trailer for that in the Spider-Man movie. All You Need is Kill. <clears throat> All You Need is Kill is the book, yes. So we will be reading All You Need is Kill and at some point seeing Edge of Tomorrow and reviewing that one as well, um, which will be it'll be our first episode where we are reviewing something that's in the theater, or at least recently in the theater right. by the time we get to it. Yeah. It <laughs> uh, depends on how well it does, I suppose. So, But until then, uh, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, may the road rise up to meet you, and may the book always fall open to where you left off. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>